Welcome to the Prairie Doc radio program. I'm Laura Ellsworth, filling in as host today for Joan Hogan. I help with fundraising efforts for the Healing Words Foundation, which is the nonprofit organization that supports this radio program, on-call television on SDPB, and other efforts to provide honest, science-based medical information. We're going to spend some time today talking about the relationship of war and medicine. So if there's a topic or a question you would like to have us to discuss um, related to that or any other medical questions you may have, give us a call at 605-692-1430. With us today is our Prairie Doc, Dr. Rick Holm. Dr. Holm's specialty is internal medicine. He has worked with the Avera Medical Group Brookings and has served as a clinical professor at the University of South Dakota's Sanford School of Medicine. Good morning, Dr. Holm. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. So the topic is really kind of a fun topic. Uh, it's unusual for us. We usually have, <clears throat> you know, heart or lung or kidney or, you know, an organ system. This is how has war advanced medicine? And, um, or, or compromised medicine. You know, we're just, we're looking at war. Uh, it, it's a real deal. There's war going on right now in this world. I don't know that there's ever been a time when there hasn't been war. Uh, but uh, certain medical advances are truly tied to it. And I, I'll give you the very first one. What do you think the first warriors had as weapons? They had clubs, didn't they? or rocks. They had these big old rocks tied to the end of a stick and they'd thump somebody on the top of the head and, and kill their opponent. And what had happened is he'd cave in the skull. Now here's these people laying on the ground, knocked out, caved in skull, and somewhere along the line, someone said, if we could just pull that skull out, we could save his life. So they would drill a hole about the size of your finger put the finger in there, and pull the skull out. Now, the interest, I mean, it's true. This really happened. Because uh, the pulling the skull out took the pressure off the head, but it also had a hole there to allow the blood to escape and take the pressure off the brain and save the brain. It's called trephination, and we still do it today. Mm -hmm. People fall, they hit their head, they're on a blood thinner maybe, or not even, and they bleed underneath the skull and they push on the brain and they lose their brain function and they die unless we drain the, the subdural hematoma. Mm -hmm. So we're still doing trephination. Uh, we have skulls that are 10,000 years old with burr holes that are healed over. Wow. So we know that we did that. There were trephination schools of medicine in Arabia, something like, um, you know, 2,000 years ago or something along that line. So trephination is one of those things that actually happened. Of course, you, you, there's a risk of infection with your dirty finger going right. in that hole. Yes. But if it could escape, if the, the, the infection could escape and the blood could escape, then it has a chance of healing. Fascinating. Uh, you know, and the, the interesting thing is that uh, in medicine, this whole thing on trephination... If you have a technique that actually works, then you start using that technique for all other things. Sure. You know, thinking that it might help these other things. Mm -hmm. 
So people um, in Peru, you know, Inca Indians and so on and so forth, you know, two, three thousand years ago, um, something like one out of every three persons that they've, uh, bodies that they've discovered had a a trephination hole uh, because they were treating, who knows, you know, psychiatry problems or dementia problems or whatever unsuccessfully i'm sure sure but they had it they did it in a way that many many people survived they would get they would be they would drill the hole and they would and then they would survive so we're talking like brain surgery <laughs> yeah the first think about it in the oh ancient uh, inca indians in peru or so that uh, trephination is one story, and I meant maybe we can go into other stories. But I, yeah, I, I let's can take see our first break. Yeah. And if you would like to call in with a question, you may call us at 605 1430. Welcome back to the Prairie Doc Radio Program. I am Laura Ellsworth, filling in for Joan Hogan. Dr. Rick Holm is here in the studio with me. And before our break, we were discussing um, medicine and war and the things we've that we've learned um, about medicine during times of war. Talked a little bit about trephination. Yes. And, uh, but there's many other things, too. What, um, what other things? Yes. Well, if you think about uh, what are the things that happened uh, in medieval times. Mm-hmm. Uh, people had swords, uh, and they would do sword fighting and so on and so forth. Well, whenever anybody got a sword through the abdomen, basically the sword would go through the gut, you know, open up, rent a hole within the small intestine, large intestine, whatever it might be. Well, no one had an ability to open up that abdomen and, and, uh, and sew up the hole and clean out the abdomen which is what we do now. I mean, I, working in Atlanta on a surgical rotation, they would come in, they, had a, they were gut shot or they had a stab wound. We would take them to surgery. You would open up the abdomen. You'd explore to see if there was any bowel that had been uh, cut mm-hmm. or, and there was bowel leaking into the abdomen. Uh, and if you found it, then you would sew it up and then you'd clean out and wash and then use antibiotic solution into the abdominal cavity and then close it up again and save a person's life they didn't have that then and so any gut shot uh, or any gut wound basically is you're dead and that was up until late 1800s and we learned antiseptics and we learned how to do abdominal surgery without killing people you know, we didn't have, we didn't know that people died of infection uh, from little bugs until Lister popularized. Um, I mean, there are other people, Semmelweis and a variety of other people who knew that there was something hidden that was spreading infection. But it was Lister who had, it. you know, Listerine is really a result of Lister. He was an English uh, guy and he was, he was easy to talk to and in convincing. The problem was Semmelweis. Semmelweis uh, uh, was obstreperous and angry, and if, in, if you didn't agree with him, then he would yell at you. And so he, lost, he, he couldn't convince his partners to wash your hands uh, between cases. Um, and so anyway, Lister uh, changed the world. 
and uh, the interesting thing about uh, the Civil War, that, because the Civil War, War was before antisepsis, before we realized the danger of bugs and bacteria and the importance of cleanliness and hand washing and gloves and all that stuff. Um, so they had anesthesia, though. Right. They could, they could give ether on the, out on the field, even. Uh, it's not too hard. And uh, drip a little ether, and if they start to wake up, put another drop on there, and then wait for them to start drop, waking up, and then drop a little. Try to not smell it yourself so that you can stay awake. Put another little drop on the mask until while they're cutting off a limb. Right. And, and basically in uh, the Civil War, the rifles got so much better that what happened, happened was that from a distance, people would be standing behind a tree, but an arm would be hanging out, and then there went the arm, you know. And, of course, the, an arm that was hit is going to, you know, those old uh, bullets drag cloth and dirt and junk into the wound, and they were going to uh, have an infection. Mm-hmm. Unless it was amputated, that was your only shot. So they amputated all these legs and arms. So that you would not have infection. That's right, to save them, because it did save them. There's data to say, and everybody screamed, you know, we, wa- we watched uh, Dances with Wolves, where, where um, oh, what's his name, the Kevin Costner <laughs> ran away. He didn't want to lose his arm or what, leg or whatever it was. Um, but the, the long and the short of it is uh, they saved lives. And all these people, both from the north and the south, who were working in those tents using ether and cutting off limbs and became adept at cutting and uh, not afraid to go forward with cutting. And so along comes the end of the Civil War. Everybody goes back to their tiny little towns, their little communities, and you have a surgeon and then along comes Lister within 10 years, and suddenly there is great um, knowledge spread throughout the country about how to care for people with surgical needs. So the world of surgery was developed really out of the Civil War. Oh, the Civil War. It's hard to imagine um, not, not knowing how important it is to keep things sterile and clean. You know, that's such a priority today, and um, to think that that... To think what what was being shared and were we using the same tools on oh everyone and uh, like you said not washing our hands from one from procedure from, to the next. You know they those those Civil War surgeons would be standing waiting for the next one and they would have their their knife in their boot or in their teeth and they would have blood you know all the way up to their elbows and they were known to be very fast you know the faster the better because right. of less anesthesia right and. Um, you know, but they didn't realize. <laughs> and then arms were going, legs were flying over into these piles. You know, you've got pictures, those pictures of piles of, of um, limbs right. is uh, very, you know, once you've seen one of those pictures, you, it's indelibly printed into your brain. Think yes. about what they did in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, well, we'll take our next break. Um, and following these words from Avera Medical Group Brookings, we will be happy to discuss the medical issues or if you have a comment regarding um, medicine and more, give us a call at 605 692 1430. Welcome back to the 
Prairie Doc radio program. I am Laura Ellsworth filling in for Joan Hogan and Dr. Rick Holm is here in the studio with me and today we're talking about the relationship between war and medicine and um, some of the experiments and the um, progress that was made through through these situations. So we've t- yes. well, One of the greatest advances in medicine happened during the Crimean War, 1850s, uh, near the Black Sea. I think the Brits were fighting somebody. I don't know. You know, everybody's fighting all the time. Fight, kill, kill, fight. And a woman named Florence Nightingale came to uh, uh, and, and said, I bet I can help these guys that are injured that are coming to the tent and let me uh, get women to help. And so uh, women and Flo- under the uh, tutelage and direction of Florence Nightingale gave these soldiers, first they'd clean them up, wash them up, make got their wounds clean, clean them up as good as they could, give them a warm uh, clothes, warm blankets, give them proper nutrition, mm-hmm. right? So you've got nutrition, you've got warmth, you've got cleanliness, and then you've got caring. Mm-hmm. And um, with those four, they found that they reduced the death rate by two-thirds. Can you imagine that? Yes. Well, I d- it doesn't surprise me. Right. You think about the value of somebody watching over you, bringing you food and water when you can't get up, helping you with your toileting, you know, the things that you need to do when you're trying to recover from a horrendous war wound. Mm-hmm. So that was a, that was an advance in medicine that that is huge repercussions even today, and that those uh, that particular thing came out of war. As bad as war is, as horrible as war is, uh, good things can happen. Uh, uh, we sh- when we can find those good things, we need to glom onto them and savor them. Right. Yeah. That, yeah, so nursing, you're talking about that. Yeah. It sounds like um, ambulance drivers and volunteer ambulance workers. Well, the ambulance, uh, actually, the ambulance carriage is what they called it yeah. for world, was Civil War. Mm-hmm. And the head, uh, what do they call it, the Surgeon General of the U.S. took it upon himself to try to do everything he could to get uh, ambulances available and people with uh, carts and stretchers to to bring the dead, the near dead or the injured off the off of the uh, the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, Antip- uh, Antietam uh, was the perfect example. Every still live but injured uh, man on the battlefield was off the battlefield and into a hospital tent by the end of the. Uh, the, by the sun setting, uh, and and that was uh, you know a year into it, and this was a result of the I can't remember his name the head of the of the um, the attorney the um, surgeon general mm-hmm. of during the Civil War. So the ambulance crews, of course, went forward. I mean, we still have ambulances, a manifestation of the Civil War. Yeah, interesting, and. Um, Sounds like for World War One, blood transfusions were really right. So, out. so they would take a tube from one person right into the next person. I mean, they didn't. 
They didn't draw it up and put it in a bag and check the bag and go through sterile techniques and da-da-da-da-da. They just put a needle in one guy and a long tube and put the needle into the other guy and and hope that, I mean, and um, they had to have a few advances. You know, early on, they were lucky a few cases, and then people would do very poorly because they would reject the blood that was being transfused, and then they finally figured it out that uh, there's uh, A, B, an O mm -hmm. type uh, blood and uh, a positive and negative and different kinds of matching of blood before you really can do a transfusion safely. Mm -hmm. But with transfusions also came IV fluids. And think about that. Uh, in a war situation or in an emergency situation or a surgical situation, you know, IV fluids are huge, wonderful advances where people wouldn't die of dehydration. You know, you didn't have to try to pour the water down their gullet just as they wake up from surgery to get mm -hmm. them to, you know, to be hydrated. Mm -hmm. So IV fluids were a wonderful thing. Now we're finding the paradox is that in the end of life when people are certainly dying, that there's nothing we're going to do to stop this. They're elderly. They're very sick. Uh, we're still putting IV fluids in them, and we should not be. You know, we need to allow a person a natural a dying process, and, and uh, it's easier uh, when people become dehydrated a little. Sure, yeah. Um, and antibiotics, um, we talked a little bit about, but before, uh, prior to antibiotics, infectious disease was a huge problem and at, at war, correct? You, you, th um, you know, more people died in the Civil War from diarrhea mm -hmm. than from gunshot wounds. You know, it was... Uh, they didn't realize that you should put the latrine down at the bottom of the creek, not at the top of the creek so <laughs> above where they're drawing water. the water. Yes. So, you know, it's an interesting. Uh, water contamination <coughs> is a, was the, the, one of the greatest troubles in the New World. People would head west. But they couldn't find w clean water, and they didn't know to do anything about the water. They'd drink the water, and then somebody would get sick. Or they'd drink the water over here, and that's not good water. And finally, they'd find, you know, but it was a trial and error deal. And it was um, a struggle uh, uh, through putting the railroad across the United States. The interesting thing is they hired, or they, I don't know what they did to get coolies from China come and help build the railroad and it's amazing how the coolies did fine they never got sick they didn't get these diarrhea illnesses um, and the coolies claimed it was because of the special teas that they brought over mm -hmm. it, but it wasn't the tea it was the boiling of the water oh, sure. so uh, we didn't realize until two you know many years later that uh, boiling water is one way to, to purify it and keep you from getting dysentery and, and all sorts of diarrhea illnesses from it. Right. Fascinating. Um, I also read about how the use of metal plates for fractures, for bone fractures, was um, really introduced and spread in World War II. Well, that, you know, and World War I. I okay. mean, in, in fact, it was World War I when they... Uh, they had access to Rinkinograms. So, I mean, so Wilhelm Rinken 
Rinken. He was originally from uh, uh, from the Netherlands, and then he was in Austria, and then in Germany. He was the guy who was messing around with these cathode rays, uh, these cathode tubes that had been developed by other people. And he was doing this, and he had a heavy cardboard thing over a fluorescent thing. Well, it he it it fluoresced through the cardboard, the heavy cardboard, and he thought, well, how did that work? So he started messing around, and he figured there were rays that were um, that were. Hold on a minute. Take the dinger off of this thing. There were rays, uh, invisible rays that would go through things. And so the the classic picture is of his wife's hand, where her bones are shown, and the soft tissues are you know are just a mere little shadow, but the bones were obvious. And of course, his, his wife freaked out. That's a death. That's a death. You're seeing my bone, my skeleton. Uh. I mean, it's a death sign. But the truth is, it was um, it was a an opening, an opportunity that was amazing. And this man did not patent it. He left it for inventors to advance for humanity. This generous man, Rinkin. And um, so they ended up finally developing x-rays. Of course, we, it was a while before we realized that too much x-ray is very, very dangerous. Kills people. Mm-hmm. People would lose you know, parts of their body or die from things. Uh, but um, in World War I, they were able to take x-rays after a trauma, see where the fractures were. And actually, the field of orthopedics popped up during World War I. Um, uh, you know, became prominent during World War One because you could see the fractures and make dis- uh, decisions from the Rankinograms or X-rays. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Fascinating. All those, all those things we just take for granted now and just have access to so easily. It was a hundred years ago. Is all. I mean, yes. it was just a blink of the eye. Right. That that all happened. You know. Now look what happens with orthopedists. Right. With you know, robots and robots everything and else. Artificial yeah. knees and on and on. Right. Well, let's take our uh, final break. And following these words from Avera Medical Group Brookings, we'll be happy to um, talk about the medical issues um, of interest to you. Give us a call at 605-692-1430. Welcome back to the Prairie Doc Radio Program. I'm Laura Ellsworth, and we have Dr. Rick Holm here in the studio with us talking about many of the amazing advancements um, in medicine, uh, many that were discovered through war times and necessity with that. World War II, actually, they, uh, they would have injuries to the heart. And uh, to do surgery on the heart is really messy because anything you touch is going to bleed like crazy, and then when you have all this blood, you can't control it, you know. Uh, and so heart surgery, uh, they did have a lot of opportunity to work on the heart, uh, but I want to say that the, the real difference, fi- and, and what they did uh, do was they, were, they found that they could cool down little kids who had these tetralogy of flows and all these other heart manifest, uh, congenital heart problems. They would cool them down and then they would stop their bleeding. They would stop the flow. They would stop their heart. And they would have, you know, like 15 minutes while the child is, you know, way cold and 
work on the heart and then open it up and see if they could make it work. Oh. Well, it was never a real, you know, it wasn't always successful and there was a lot of side effects from that uh, until a guy from the U University of Minnesota, his name was Lily High, developed a heart-lung machine. And so what he would do is he would take the blood from the inferior vena cava that's coming back into the heart, and he would run it through the machine and it would oxygenate the blood, and then he would put it back into the aorta to feed the blood, uh, the brain and the arms and the legs. So he bypassed the heart and the lungs. So it was a uh, heart-lung machine that allowed you to have a dry heart that was stopped so that you can go in there and cut out that bad aortic valve and replace it with a mechanical valve or fix the hole in the heart or open it up and find the, the foreign body or the infection in there or whatever surgery it is that you had to do. Uh, you could do it now because they bypassed the heart and the lung and kept the body oxygenated um, instead of having to freeze it. You know, that was, that, that was a huge advancement and that happened I think as an as a result of some of the World War II uh, the practices and, and experiences when they were working on gunshot wounds to the heart. Doing a lot of work with the hearts. We had a caller call in with a comment um, saying that embalming began in the Civil War to ship soldiers home and that the first military embalmer was Dr. Thomas Holmes. H-O-L-M. So, H-O-L-M. Well, I'm not sure for sure, but Dr. How about that? Yeah, so <laughs> embalming started uh, with the Civil War, which is also an important um, process and keep for, of for a lot of different... Of course, I mean, dealing with the, the dead and yeah. uh, helping our society uh, um, handle it. I mean, you know, when you have dead bodies, you either bury them quickly or right. you embalm them so that, right. that people can see them and do their mourning mm -hmm. and have their formal worship. And not spread diseases. Why not spread diseases and, yes. and so on. Well, yeah. tomorrow night is, uh, we have uh, Mike Peckus, who is a, uh, he was a aviator, a, a flyer. I mean, he's a, in the Air Force and flew airplanes and was a big military guy and was into uh, military war and me medicine. He's also an ophthalmologist, Mike Peckus. And then from Atlanta, Georgia, by Skype, is Mike Maffett, who is a kind of a historian sort of guy. You know, one of those people that sort of reminds me of the first uh, Civil War documentaries uh, series that was put on by, what's his name? Ken Burns, you know, that there was this gentleman who spoke with this very Southern, gentle uh, way, and you just, you know, loved his voice and the way he thought. And that's this story. Uh, Mike Maffitt is a historian. He's an internist. He was, he and I were interns together, uh, residents together, and then he did anesthesia after that and uh, is just now retired. So it'll be a great show tomorrow, and I'm very excited. Very good. Well, we'll look forward to that. And thank you for your the information you shared today. Fascinating all that you know, Dr. Holm, and very interesting to think about these things and how... Um, 
medicine has been impacted by times of war and makes me incredibly grateful for our hospitals and clinics and all the advancements that we have available to us and our families. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program and we'll listen again for Prairie Doc brought to you by the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc library. As always, you can hear and see more from Dr. Holm online at prairiedoc.org. Thank you, Dr. Holm. Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Bob. And stay healthy out there, people. And you should exercise, too, you know.